It is very difficult and yet absolutely essential to turn your Bible study into something bigger, a worldview, a theology, something you can and do apply to your own life in all its aspects. You've got to move from trees to forest. This is something teachers help us do. And I have one of them on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today, Wayne Grudem. His famous systematic theology has helped numerous Christians over the years to make connections between their Bible and their patterns of thinking, and between their Bibles and their lives. Join us. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ward, and I'm joined today by Dr. Wayne Grudem. And I will let Dr. Grudem introduce himself, although for a lot of you, he doesn't need introduction. Dr. Grudem, where do you teach? Where have you taught? And what's your latest book? (laughs) I teach at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I've been here 19 years. This is my 20th year. Well, the other question was my latest book. Yes. It's just coming out now. I'm going to release December 8th. Uh, it's called Systematic Theology. And um, it was first published in 1994, which is 26 years ago. And this will be a revised edition. I think it was 1,290 pages in the first edition. And it's... Uh, it's been widely used. I'm thankful to the Lord for that. About 19 different languages have had it translated. Um, the revision adds about 16% to the length of the book. A lot of new content, and I could tell you about that if you're, if you're interested. I've got specific questions about those editions, that's true, but I'd actually like to start with a more general question. I think I know the answer to this. But let me observe that your systematic is the only one that I've ever heard of lay Bible study groups going all the way through, often with the pastor guiding them. I've never heard people doing that with Burkhoff or Erickson or Raymond, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Was that your intent? Did you envision lay people going all the way through your systematic? Well, I wrote the book with the audience I had in mind was first-year seminary students who didn't have any background in theology before they came to seminary and not any academic background in classes or anything. But I uh, imagined that my parents were sitting in the back of the classroom as visitors. And so I wanted them to be able to understand as well. My, my, my dad went two years to college. My mother didn't go to college at all, wasn't able to. Um, and uh, yet they'd been Christians reading their Bibles for their entire lives. And so they were a good example of an interested, intelligent Christian layperson. And I wanted to make systematic theology understandable to ordinary readers because I think God wants us to understand uh, in summary form or in a, in a condensed form um, what the whole Bible teaches about various topics, like what is justification, what is sanctification, what is the doctrine of the Trinity, what is the omnipotence of God, omniscience of God, immutability of God? Um, what is the atonement? What is the significance of the resurrection? I mean, there are a lot of questions like that. And we have 57 chapters in systematic theology. And um, it has turned out that many people have found it useful because it's written in language that they can understand. When I use technical terms, I explain them 
don't assume that people understand them. Um, you mentioned Burkhoff Systematic Theology. I started out using that as a primary textbook, teaching college theology classes. But he has untranslated Greek, Hebrew, Latin, German, French, and I think Dutch occasionally. Um, and then his English vocabulary is um, difficult for ordinary and educated people because it's a lot of times technical vocabulary. And I thought I could perhaps make a, a textbook in theology that would be able to be understood more clearly and more easily by ordinary people. So it's been used as a textbook, but it's been used, as they say, in churches. I, I know of one church um, that had 800 people work through the 1,200 and some pages of the text, chapter at a time. I think I'm safe in saying that that is rather uncommon. Yes, any church <laughs> I think so. <laughs> would go through such a lengthy book, but it's a testimony to the success the Lord gave you in reaching that goal of trying to speak to your parents in the back of the room so they can understand. Right. Now, let me ask a question about Bible study. This is the Bible Study Magazine podcast. How should systematic theology be brought into my Bible study? I'll ask the how question. Then later, I'm going to ask the when question. First, how do I bring it in? I think systematic theology gives us guidelines on what the whole Bible teaches about certain topics. So that if we get into a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is demonstrating his power as God, stilling the storm, for instance, um, but he's still fully human because he's asleep in the boat. Uh, and he, so it means he's tired. So how can you put together the idea that Jesus is fully human, but fully divine, able to say to the winds and the waves, be still, and they obey him. That's the voice of the creator. Uh, that only God can do that. Um, how can you put together the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person? Well, it took the church about 400 some years to come to an agreed definition, the Chalcedonian Creed or Chalcedonian definition in 451 AD. And um, it's helpful for people to understand the arguments that went on, the various mistakes that went on. And so in their Bible study, they won't be teaching misleading things or incorrect things about who Jesus was. Um, well, my next question then would be, when does systematic theology come into my Bible study? Beginning, middle, and what, what should I be thinking as a lay Bible student? Whenever. Um, I, um, I think it's helpful to read through the Bible sequentially, by chapter by chapter. And I'm doing that uh, every day myself, reading a chapter in the Old Testament and a chapter on, I'm in Second Kings. In the Old Testament, I'm in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, uh, in the New Testament, and I have that as a lifetime habit. Um, but it's also useful to have summaries of what the whole Bible teaches about various topics that it covers. And so, Mark, I, I would say that um, anyone who's been doing Bible study chapter after chapter, verse after verse, would benefit from reading a summary of the whole Bible's teaching about the person of Christ or the nature of prayer or miracles or the creation, um, many different topics that are covered in a book on systematic theology. Systematic just means well-organized by topics. Right. Yeah, we've been implicitly answering the question, what is systematic theology, by a couple statements you've made. 
by yeah. listing off some of the topics, how would you define it? It's any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible say? Or what does the whole Bible teach us today about different topics? And some, some of those I've mentioned. Heaven, now, hell, Satan, demons, angels. Uh, I think, did you ever teach together with Moises Silva at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School? No, Moises was, he's a friend, and he was at Westminster Seminary Westminster. for a number of years, yes. Why did I get that wrong? Okay, I'm a big fan of Silva. I should have known that. Thank you for correcting me there. Now, but I know you know Silva. I want to bounce off of you something that he said in a book that um, I've been thinking about over the years many times. <clears throat> he said that um, a lot of people give the advice that you should try to come to the Bible fresh without any presuppositions. And, and I definitely remember, remember thinking that as a child. I wish I could just be on a desert island with no influences and read my Bible. Then I wouldn't be confused mm -hmm. by all of the opinions out there. But, but he said, no, actually, you can't come without some kind of pre-understanding. Right. Often wrong, sometimes right. If you're raised right. in a Christian home, you probably have a lot of good pre-understandings. You've been taught well. Um, so you might as well own that and very self-consciously bring your pre-understanding to the text. In uh, the hermeneutical spiral that Grant Osborne talks about, I know you cite him uh, in the book, in the New Systematic, and I, I'm sure in the old. Um, do you like that idea that you should very self-consciously be aware of your pre-understandings, your presuppositions when you come to Bible study? Um, that might be a hard task for people to do just out of the blue. Say, what do you mean pre-understanding presuppositions? Um, but I, I would say a couple of things. Um, the original readers of Romans or 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter or Hebrews didn't come to the Bible with no background at all. They had the presence of usually a living apostle such as Peter or Paul teaching them for weeks or months in some, kind, some cases in Corinth and Ephesus. Paul was a year and a half in Corinth and three years in Ephesus. Well, if you've had Paul's teaching you for three years, you're not coming to the Bible fresh with no understanding at all. You're coming with a very sophisticated, advanced understanding. And um, so we should understand that the, um, the original readers of much of the Bible had, even in the Old Testament, they'd been taught by their parents when they walk, when they rise up, when they sit down, when they walk Promises. by the way. So um, when I was on the, trans well, I am on the translation committee for the, ESV, the English Standard Version, we specified that our audience was adult Christian readers. Now, children can come up to that standard. They can learn some from it. But we figured that the, um, the primary audience for much of Scripture is adult Christian readers. And um, so that was our translation goal. So we do come with understandings that are should be more and more influenced by the teaching of the Bible as we go through life. I hope that, um, I expect you would agree, Mark, that you understand much more about the Bible now than when you first became a believer. And that understanding helps you, uh, it keeps you from making mistakes on difficult passages, uh, and it helps you understand more difficult passages and how themes work together through the whole scripture. So um, I think we should come with the best understanding that we have at any time in our lives. 
and let it be corrected by further Bible reading. Uh, that's that the other thing. Yes, good. Thank you for that. Um, the Bible has a way. The Bible has a way of correcting us um, as we read it over time. We have a viewpoint of some some understanding of justification or saving faith or something, and then we keep bumping into verses that modify that uh, conviction or correct it or refine it. And that's good. It should happen that way. Yeah, because we're not God. We don't get to reveal the truth. We have to submit ourselves to it. We're his servants. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software and all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. I've got another question for you about this new edition of your systematic theology. I hate to have to reveal this, but your first edition came out when I was 13 years old. <laughs> um, I'm pushing 40 now, yeah. and I know that you, you, you seem to be very self-conscious uh, in your introductory materials about how you're using your energies at this stage in your God-given life. You put lots of hours into that 16% edition, lots of little corrections you said throughout the book uh, based on things that people sent you over the years from around the world. What, what really motivated you to say, it's time to put in all those hours to make a second edition? What were some of the leading issues or ideas or questions that you felt you just had to face and this justifies a new edition after all this time? Right, well, um... Mark, I, uh, 
I have taught from this systematic theology book for 25, 26 years now. And as new topics or new problems came up in the church or in the evangelical world, I added lecture material to my classes. So um, the question of the new perspective on Paul with N.T. Wright and a different view of justification, where he argues that justification means declaring that we're included in the community of believers in the body of Christ. Um, that wasn't on the horizon in any uh, extensive way when I first published in 1984. It was in the academic world, but not very widespread and popular. And I needed to add a section on that. Uh, the open theism, the view that um, God doesn't know future human choices, that all was a controversy that came after I published the book. Um, over the years, I was conscious of the need to define the similarities and differences between evangelical Protestant belief, which represents me, uh, and our Roman Catholic friends, where we agree and where we disagree. And I ended up making some lists of doctrines, and then uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church that came out also in 1994, um, I was able to quote extensively and interact with that to some degree. Um, We've been in Arizona for uh, 19, the lower 19 years now, and there's a large Mormon population here, wonderful friends and neighbors and things, but they have very different beliefs from Christian orthodoxy. And so I added a section on differences between Mormonism and evangelical Protestant and Christian beliefs. There's a section on Protestant liberalism, which undermines the, or denies the divine authorship of scripture. Um, I was involved in um, quite extensive discussions and eventually co-edited a book on creation and evolution. And uh, I have a revised, totally revised chapter on creation, uh, new arguments for intelligent design and specific creation. Um, and then uh, completely new material on the age of the earth. Um, another chapter that I thought was adequate, but I wasn't satisfied with, was the chapter on the clarity of scripture. And I was asked to give a lecture at, in Cambridge, England at the Tyndall Fellowship meeting a few years ago, and I extensively revised and I think clarified my chapter on the clarity of scripture, its understandability. And uh, I think the Lord allowed me to have new insight into that, and there was good interaction with people at the conference. Um, and so that chapter has been extensively revised. Um, when I taught on the inerrancy of scripture, I brought up examples of supposed problem texts in the gospels where people say there's a connection, a contradiction between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those all have answers, but I was putting them into lectures and hadn't put them in the book. So I put some of those hard texts in the book. Um, other, um, let me see. Uh, Molinism or middle knowledge um, response to critics of penal substitutionary atonement, which was popularized in England and then in the United States, opposition to that. Um, I um, also found over the years, when you were 13 and my book came, you were 13 when my book came out, um, you probably grew up knowing hymns like Holy, 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 and Great is Thy Faithfulness, and um, what a friend we have in Jesus and 
and I would start a class with a hymn every class period throughout the years. But over the years, I found more and more students didn't know, I had no idea what these hymns were, and I, was, I didn't want to sing a solo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so um, I've kept the hymns, one hymn at the end of each chapter. But um, I've added a contemporary worship song at the end of each chapter as well. And uh, so uh, I have music that is words into music that is more familiar to people. The uh, Systematic Theology came out in 1994. The ESV Bible, of which I was a member of the Translation Committee, came out in 2001. So uh, the, the edition, first edition of Systematic Theology quoted the old Revised Standard Version with my modifications to a number of verses. Uh, but that has all been switched now, and it, and it has um, all ESV quotes in it for the Bible quotations. So there, and then there are just dozens of little corrections here and there. But those are some of the differences. So it sounds like there wasn't one pressing issue that really made you think this is worth the energy. It was just the, the accumulation of multiple changes in the world, um, new things that needed to be talked about. Yes. So I had another question for you along those same lines. I wrote a paper not too long ago about an obscure problem in bibliology that actually I don't want people to even know about this problem. But for those few that have this question, they can look at my paper. I, I found some of the, uh, the new things that you added to your systematic to be also relatively small you know, uh, as far as uh, a number of adherents like Molinism, yes. I've met Molinists, but not that many. Um, Free Grace was another one that got in yes. a larger movement for sure, but still I can't say I've run into that many people who hold it. What helps? Arizona, I can introduce you to. Okay. <laughs> to a what, number of people who hold it. What may, well, I'm probably going to get a lot of mail now after this podcast comes out. Okay, so what helps a particular issue merit inclusion then in your systematic theology? Um, most, in most cases, it's something that I think is a mistake, but it's gaining traction among evangelical churches and pastors and seminary students. Um, Molinism or middle knowledge was one of those. Uh, and free grace theology was, um, that's a specialized form of uh, view of saving faith and assurance, um, a different view. And that was um, quite prominent in the churches and the area where I live in, in Arizona. So when I saw something, saw that something was gaining a new perspective on Paul, open theism, gaining a um, significant hearing among evangelicals, I thought it needed to be addressed. Um, so, and then, and then there, were, there were some small places where I changed my mind. Um, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the old King James Version had only begotten son. And the New King James Version has only begotten Son, and the New American Standard has only begotten. But the majority view among New Testament commentators over the last few decades has been that that Greek word monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, that that word meant uh, only or unique, not um, only begotten. And yet new research 
by Professor Irons in California. Irons. Particularly. Um, he did extensive study of related terms in the uh, ancient world, related terms to monogamous in Greek, and found that they again and again referred to origin or birth. So protogenes would be firstborn, purgenes fireborn, thalassogenes seaborn, um, and uh, then he has a, a great explanation of how monogamous can in some cases mean only, but it's connected to begetting or bearing children. So uh, the data convinced me that I was wrong in saying, in denying that there's a, a, a teaching in scripture, a teaching thread in scripture, that there is an eternal generation of the son by the father. Uh, in the Nicene Creed in 325, revised 321, 381 AD, uh, said uh, of Christ that he was begotten of the Father before all ages. So it never began, this eternal begetting, but it has to do with the relationship between the Father and the Son eternally. And then it says, begotten, not made. So begetting in, in Greek um, can refer either to the mother's role or the father's role in bearing children. Um, but it has to do with uh, origin of children, and it's applied to Christ in this monogamous uh, phrase. So anyway, I ended up reaffirming the historic doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Um, the Son is somehow from the Father, it never began, He was never created, He's always fully God, but somehow there's a fromness, that all things are from the Father through the Son. So I changed my mind on that. There are a couple of other other issues, but uh, not too many. You raised there one of the hottest issues in the last about five years as regards the work of Dr. Wayne Grudem. And I want to ask you a question that I find helpful to ask myself whenever I'm involved or exploring some controversy. And I found it really hard to answer. I wonder if you can help me. When you look at the overall ESS, eternal subordination of the sun controversy yeah. that caught up a lot of evangelicals, what do you think the nub was? What was the center where evangelicals over here are saying one thing and evangelicals over here are either denying it or saying something quite different? Well, uh, it's a mixed, it has to be a mixed answer, a mixed uh, number of factors. Um, one of the factors was that I was arguing against the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, based on uh, an understanding of that word monogamous, which I changed. And so I agreed with my critics in that area. I think it was a useful and helpful correction. Um, the other thing, and I said this publicly at a long debate at the Evangelical Theological Society. I was there. In 2016. Um, it seems to me that there is in our culture a widespread uh, hesitancy, reluctance, opposition, suspicion of the idea of authority and submission. And um, I'm convinced that in the um, sending the Father sending the Son into the world, the Father loving the world that he gave his only son, 
son coming and being obedient to the father, we see a pattern where there is authority of the father and the son always obeys the father. And um, even in creation, all things were made through him, uh, from the father through the son. That's the pattern. And uh, Ephesians 1, God shows us in him. That's the father choosing us in the son before the foundation of the world. So uh, there's an initiatory or uh, primary role to the Father, for the Father in the relationships within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, um, I think and I take account of what uh, some who differ with me have said, but I still think it's right to uh, affirm that there is uh, an eternal relationship of authority and submission between the Father and the Son, and that those are not because of sin or disobedience or reluctance. It's a joyful submission, but there's a, and, but it's a relational difference between the Father and the Son. There's no difference in being, no difference in attributes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God, fully divine, same attributes, but it's a different relationship. And uh, I still think there's value in affirming that. Yeah, I've read the work of David Coises on authority. Many cultural commentators have noted the same thing that you have. And yes, I, I saw this fight sort of coming uh, to the church because of those pressures from outside. Right. You, um, an interesting comment about authority that I took note of, I put in my notes as I went through the copy of your book that was kindly sent to me by HarperCollins, was a letter that you received from, was it your doctor father? Um, C.F.D. Moule after the first edition of Systematic Theology, or was right. he just he one was of the my supervisor. He was my supervisor at Cambridge. Yeah. He wrote to thank you for your generous gift of your maximum opus. Even back then, before it was 16% longer, people were making little <laughs> jokes about how long it was. He said, I'm filled with admiration for your hard and accurate work. I know you wouldn't expect me to agree with you doctrinally, we are poles apart in our understanding of authority. That made me think immediately of J.I. Packer's first book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, where he lays out the different approaches to authority within, very broadly speaking, uh, the Christian religion. And he named liberalism, which I think Moore would be representing here, um, as having a very different version, uh, uh, understanding of authority. And I, but I, I find that it's difficult to get people um, to actually say so openly and out loud. And I actually appreciate it when someone like Mool just openly reveals what he's thinking. Yes, well, I have to say that uh, Professor Mool was a wonderful doctoral supervisor, gracious, thoughtful, perceptive, uh, very kind, and always encouraging. Um, he, the big dividing line between evangelicals and liberals on theology is whether you think that this book, the Bible, is uh, merely human words about religious experiences that people had in the past, such as David or Paul or whoever. Is it merely human words, or is it human words that are also fully divine? Now, I believe as an evangelical Christian uh, that the Bible claims for itself that it's God's own words. It's, it's thus says the Lord. It has that quality throughout. It's all God breathed. Second Timothy three sixteen. Uh, so I understand those words to be God's words as well as human words. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation under Professor Moll at Cambridge, 
73 to 76, I was working on the text of 1 Corinthians. Um, and I just had to write a dissertation that accurately explained the vocabulary, the grammar in the Greek text of 1 Corinthians and the um, flow of thought and the argument and answer objections to that understanding of its meaning. Now, Professor Mole thought of them as words written by a man named Paul in the first century AD, who probably had an encounter with the risen Christ because he, Professor Mole believed in the resurrection. And he was a conservative among liberals. Um, and uh, he thought it was Paul's words and uh, worthy of our study. I thought they were also God's very words, but I, he, he and I differed on that, but that wasn't part of my dissertation. I just had to explain the Greek grammar and context and argument and vocabulary. Uh, so, uh, so that's a, that's a difference, and um, uh, I think that it's important for Christians to understand that that difference exists, because ninety-five percent of the, or ninety percent probably of the religion teachers, the Old Testament or New Testament professors at state colleges and secular universities today will teach classes in Bible, but they'll view it only as human words, which can have mistakes and have wrong ideas. And uh, as evangelical believers, we take it to be God's very words, as well as human words. And as they are God's very words, they are without error. They're completely truthful. One of the things that I found helpful in your new edition, I went right to some of the uh, the new material, and I read your chapter on clarity. And I'd done some work in that area, too. I just knew you would cite my favorite book, Mark D. Thompson's uh, uh, Clear and Present Word, which is excellent. I found so helpful. Yeah. And one, one thing that came out of my study was really a, a ringing series of words from Jesus that, by my count, I think he says five times, largely to the Pharisees or Sadducees, he'll say, have you not read? Yeah. Which implies not only that the words of God are, at least in general, un understandable, although yes. that clarity is hard won, uh, you and Thompson will say, it takes effort in the ordinary use of means. Right. But actually there's there's a morality attached to understanding them that you're actually obligated because these are god's words to understand i just wanted to say i found your collection of passages that imply the clarity and our moral responsibility to understand scripture i found that to be really helpful thank you for that well thank you mark um that that doctrine the clarity of scripture basically that the Bible is written in such a way that it is able to be understood. That doesn't mean everybody understands it correctly right off the bat on first reading or anything like that, but it's not impossible. It, it repays careful study. And the more we study it with a willingness to obey it and a prayer for God's help, the more we will understand it more deeply and more correctly. So I, I think it should be a great encouragement to all believers because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So even people who are simple and don't have uh, perhaps uh, great intelligence or worldly wisdom uh, can read the Bible and be educated and trained by it. And if, if the simple people can understand it, then surely all the rest of us, if, if we are not simple, 
whether we are or not, uh, we're able to understand it rightly if we read it, uh, seeking to obey it. I have to see that truth that lay people without specialized training, but with the help of teachers, teachers like you in your book, right. um, and with Bible translations made by teachers, they can come to be wiser than their teachers, as David talked about. <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen Good. people who didn't have college educations who got to know their Bibles well. It really does happen. So I have a question for oh, you yeah. that I think will round out our discussion, and I so much appreciate your time. You do talk at one point in the book about the role of teachers, um, and I took down some of this. I think it might have been in a footnote, but I, I took note of it. Um, I think you were citing Osborne. You said, Osborne recognizes that there are levels of understanding of Scripture, and you quote him saying, the average person is justified in asking whether biblical understanding is increasingly being reserved for the academic elite. And Osborne, and you're echoing him, said, I would argue that it is not. But Osborne said there are different levels of understanding, like you referred to earlier. Yes, I do understand the Bible. I sure hope so, better than I did when your first edition came out when I was 13 years old. Um, but I've seen a lot of resentment and distrust going back and forth across the academic elites, biblical studies folks, toward the lay people, and the other direction. How hmm. can that be healed? How can we have the right attitude toward one another? I kind of stand on the border helping um, popularize ideas from teachers for lay people. I'd like to see the two sides come together, but I see a lot of distrust and resentment. Help us. Well, I would encourage um, any professors of PhD in New Testament or Old Testament or theology, church history, um, get involved in a small group in your church and be involved with ordinary lay people and get involved in a Bible study with them. And um, you'll find out that they often have a very helpful understanding of Scripture. Um, Mark, when I, I used to teach um, Greek exegesis at Trinity sometimes, and um, it'd be the second year Greek class. And the first day of class, I'd ask a student to open his Bible to any page or her Bible to any page and just put a finger on a verse randomly, English Bible, and then explain to the class what that verse means and how it fits in the context. And nine times out of 10, at least, the student will do a pretty good job of it. So then I say, why, do you, why did you come to seminary? <laughs> you can already understand the Bible. My answer is, seminary is gaining more precision in something you already do quite well. Because if you've lived as a Christian for a number of years, you've been reading the Bible, seeking to be obedient to the Lord, spending time with Him in prayer. Um, you understand quite a, quite a bit about the Bible. Um, and um, I think we need to appreciate that. I, I love that, and I will definitely steal that story, if that's okay with you. Sure. I want to it's, use it, that. It's further uh, training. It's gaining further precision in, something you, in interpreting the Bible, which is something you already do quite well. Yeah, as, as so, one of my professors said, preaching and Bible teaching, they're just reading. And I was reading the Bible as a kid, and my 
yeah. my understanding of the Bible is not radically discontinuous from what it was Correct. at age nine. It's, it's just more precise, more detailed, it's more precise, more detailed. Yes, good. Yes, I um, I think there's also a danger, and I don't have anybody particular in mind this way, but there's also a danger in any field of study that people who have uh, extensive academic training in a field, specialized field, such as New Testament or Old Testament, Greek or Hebrew, um, there's a temptation to show off how much you know and to um, put down other people who don't have that training. Uh, I warned seminary students about that because they're gaining some knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and theology and church history. And they'll have knowledge that lay people in their church won't. But that that deacon or elder in their church who didn't have the opportunity to have a college education may be really wise in understanding scripture and how it applies to marriage, how it applies to children, how it applies to church life, how it applies to business, um, because he's lived it or she's lived it. Um, and we should not... Um, Disdain. Disdain, that's a good, yes. Think lightly or disdain the uh, understanding of ordinary lay people. Sometimes we can help, sometimes we can correct, but often it's uh, at a specialized level and a very detailed level. Well, that's what you've done with your systematic theology. You've helped, you've corrected, and the entire thing is a big argument for the very real possibility that people without college degrees and seminary degrees can not only get to know their Bibles, but apply their Bibles to all the questions that in God's good providence they face in their lives. Thank you yes. for the work that you've done. Thank you for showing up in this interview on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thank you, Mark. Dr. Grudem is known right now in American evangelicalism for his political views, views this is not a place to discuss. But I want to make a prediction. When this political period passes, Grudem will be abidingly known for his systematic theology, for how it showed that theology can and should be made accessible to Bible students.